Welcome to Fully Vetted Animal Care News from the Clinic to the Farm, presented by the Ohio Veterinary Medical Association. And here is your host, Mia Cunningham, and producer, Kristen Bennett. Welcome back to the Fully Vetted Podcast, brought to you by the Ohio Veterinary Medical Association. My name is Mia Cunningham, and I am happy to be joined by my colleague and co-host, Kristen Bennett. Kristen, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Kristen's typically behind the scenes, so I'm, I'm happy I was able to pull her out for this one. And, and we are very <laughs> pleased to welcome back to the podcast what I am going to go ahead and say is a show favorite, Dr. Mia Carey. Dr. Carey, hi, how are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. I am so happy to be back with you guys today. Well, I, I certainly appreciate your willingness to be here with us today as we kind of tackle a tough subject. We wanted to talk about racism and what it means to be an ally. And, you know, as Kristen and I were thinking about ideas about how to broach the conversation, you know, equally we were thinking about who we could invite to join to have this discussion with us. And you were top of mind. You know, we had the benefit of meeting you back in February at the Midwest Veterinary Conference. And Kristen, I, I do think it's fair to say that after that encounter, like we were immediate fans. For those who may not have listened to that podcast or just may not be familiar with you and your work, would you mind sharing a little bit about your background? Thank you, Mia. As you were opening up the podcast, I was thinking February, that's like a lifetime ago, right? <laughs> no, for all of us and the listeners. Oh, but we're here. We're here. We're learning. We're growing. We're moving forward, which is, is great. So a little bit about my background. I always think of my career in these phases. So I worked as a veterinary technician before and during vet school and then an associate veterinarian in a small animal practice immediately after veterinary school. And then in research, doing marine mammal research. And then I moved into clinical medicine and then I was exposed to industry where I spent about five years with Novartis Animal Health and nine years with Beringer Ingelheim in a variety of roles from technical support, training, sales, marketing, executive leadership, um, and then transitioned to my association phase where I spent three and a half years with the NABC leading their educational efforts and their strategic partnerships. And then a very similar role with the AVMA. And then about, it's been about a year and a half now I've been out on my own and I'm happy to say that a lot of those former work colleagues are clients now, so we get to continue our work together. Pride VMC Group is one of my clients. They're amazing. I am their CEO, so I'm the only staff member on with a group of amazing volunteer leaders. I have been a member of that organization for years. I am an ally and a supporter, and it's so um, happy to be able to work with them formally on a daily basis. And with Carrie Consulting, it's it's focused, you know, if I had to in one word, it's, it's leadership, but there's so many layers with leadership, right? Communication, strategic planning, diversity, equity, inclusion, well-being, and teamwork. I spend a lot of time talking about collaboration and teamwork, and at the end of the day, my purpose, you know, what really gets me up in the morning, both professionally and personally, is what I call activating others to thrive. So if I can do that, if I can help others, not just get through the day, but actually thrive, then for me, that, that's a good day. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Mia. Let's shift now to the issue of racism. The current climate has been, I think, a wake-up call for a lot of people, and it's no longer enough to simply not be a racist. What's the first step for someone who's been sitting on the fence when it comes to racism in shifting to an active position? Such a great first question and a powerful one. One thing I want to hone in on is the word active, because I think when our listeners hear that, they're all, all of a sudden going to be like making a sign and going to a protest, right? Okay, I'm going to actively do something. And we're, we are talking about being active, but I would say the very first step, and it is still being active, is doing the internal hard work first. 
doing the education, um, taking time to really consider, well, where am I at in this whole spectrum of racism and anti-racism? And to educate ourselves is still being active, right? It's just ramping that up a bit, maybe more so than we've done in the past. And then as we become more comfortable, which we will quickly, right? If we consume all of the amazing resources out there, we're going to be more comfortable so that we can speak up. We can start to call people on them and we can do it in such a way that's assuming the best and assuming that they they didn't understand, they didn't know, but my goodness, let's talk about that. And it's amplifying, right? Amplifying the voices of those that um, have for too long been marginalized so that we can move forward. So to me, it's those are all part of the first steps. And again, depending on where we are as individuals on what I think of as that continuum of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and, and, and combating racism, that's going to tell us, that's going to dictate what's that next step going to be based on what we've already done, the work we've already put in for ourselves. And then we just keep taking one step more day in, day in and day out. Yeah, because it's a marathon for sure. It's a marathon, absolutely. And when you talk about the continuum, I think there's there's always going to be a desire or necessity to continue to learn. And kind of like in that same space as, as I'm growing in this too, you know, trying to figure out where my voice is and how I want to advocate. But there are so many terms out there. We are hearing more about implicit bias, intersectionality, Black Lives Matter movement, what it means to be anti-racist. Can you talk to us a little bit about those terms? I'm just like you were all learning in this. And I have started a document, DEI definitions is what I call it. And as I expose to more and more terms, I put a definition in there and then I change it, right? I hear another source. I'm like, oh, I like that definition better. And then I always put my resources in there. And, and for me, it's a living, breathing document that I use to keep myself straight. Then I think it'll stimulate people creating those for themselves and, and looking things up, right? And, and we have to be okay with that. If we don't know, what a great opportunity to stop and go, ooh, that sounds familiar, but I don't quite remember it. Let me look it up. But let's talk about some of those terms. So unconscious bias, and then we'll also hear implicit bias. We'll hear those two terms used sometimes interchangeably. And really, the, the, a bias is something that is typically a attitude or a stereotype that affects how we make decisions or actions. And historically, we use the term unconscious bias because experts spoke on these biases as if we were completely unaware that we were doing it. And then more and more research found out that, well, actually, maybe sometimes we are aware. And if we are aware, then it's on us to actually start doing something about it. So you hear people using implicit bias, meaning, okay, maybe it's not explicit. Maybe we are aware that it's happening. Then we have to think about, well, what's our responsibility to actually acknowledge it and do something about it? Now, what's interesting about this term, whether using implicit or unconscious, is that it's about action. So, so not only am I mentally thinking this, but it's informing my action or it's informing my decisions. And I'll give you some examples. So one is that women aren't good at math, right? That's an implicit or unconscious bias, depending on um, where you're coming from. Another one is that men aren't good listeners. And if you're thinking that, it could be impacting how you're interacting with others. So let's go with the first example. Say I am a hiring manager and I work for an engineering company. And my implicit bias is that women aren't good at math. And I'm hiring, again, for an engineering position. And I'm going to unconsciously or implicitly lean towards male candidates. And again, in an HR setting, right, you'd never say that out loud, but it could be happening here. And you could be leaning towards male candidates when the very best candidate right in front of your face is female, but you've got your blinders on. So that's one to think about and spend time again reflecting because we all do it. We all do it. And once we start to put a name to it, we can see it, we can understand it, and we can, of course, correct. 
So, so intersectionality, it's actually a, a term that was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw. Intersectionality, as Kimberly Crenshaw defines it, is the lens through which we really look at the word, approach the word, because of these different persona that we carry with us. And typically their persona are oppressed personalities of, from oppressed groups. And I, I was called on this, and I think it's important to share. I tend to use the term and historically use the term in a positive light. And um, a good friend and colleague said, man, there's nothing positive about intersectionality. And let me, let me explain that. So, for example, as it relates to Black Lives Matter, think about transgender Black females. They are targeted and killed at a horrifying rate because of the intersectionality of being Black, of being female, and being transgender, right? So it's the multiple forms of oppression that lead to how they experience the world. Now, how I turn the upside of this, and I still do it to this day, and I think it's important to do so, is... That can be a beautiful thing when you're thinking about the diversity bonus, right? So if I'm working with a group of people and I'm trying to problem solve, I would love to have a black female transgender person as part of that group because they're going to think differently than I do. They're going to think of ideas that I could never think of because I don't have those same lenses. Pride BMC, we have a student diversity bonus award and we have a student intersectionality award. And we chose those names intentionally to emphasize their importance because we wanted the students, one, to think about the term, right? Because it's a relatively new term to a lot of people. Think about that. Think about what it means to them and their different lenses and why that makes them such a strong candidate, a strong person, a strong a member of the community because of what they can bring to conversations because of the diversity bonus. Definitely, when you think of the word intersectionality, you want to think about the potential different ways that someone could be oppressed more than one way. And the upside is what can you do with that? And why are you a stronger human because of that? And why would I be a stronger person if I would connect with more and more people that are not like me, right, to make for stronger decision making and just a richer life? And then anti-racism is a term that isn't new, but yet we're seeing it used a lot this year. And I really like um, Ibram Kendi's definition the best. Um, he actually wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so I default to his definition because it's simple and powerful. And it's basically an anti-racist is a person who supports an anti-racist policy through their actions, through um, how they express ideas. So if they are supporting an anti-racist policy, they're an anti-racist. You know, I, I've heard people and I recently say, oh, well, well, Mia, I have a lot of black friends, so I'm an anti-racist. I'm like, eh, no, no, you got to dig a little deeper than that, right? There's more to it than that. It's how are you actually making decisions and approaching the world and what are the policies that you support or don't support? And, and by policies, it could be just within your workplace, within your community. Many people, when they hear policy, you think of like government, right? Your local, state, or federal government. And it could mean that too, but it's also just the immediate uh, work environments as well. And the last term here that we'll spend time on, and as a white person, it's very important that I am aware of is um, white privilege. And I had the honor of attending the first conference of the National Association of Black Veterinarians last year. And I learned so much sitting in that audience and talk about being humbled and, and horrified and yet feeling so good that I was there and learning. Um, that's the first time I heard this term, white privilege. And it's the reality that a white person's whiteness comes with a whole host of benefits and advantages that aren't always shared by people of color. And as a really kind of get to the core of the matter example is the privilege that I have of having a positive relationship generally with police right? So if I'm pulled over, my thought is like, oh my God, I wonder if I was speeding versus if I'm a person of color, you know, what does this mean to me in terms of my safety? 
And there are others that can speak much more um, detailed on that from the perspective of a person of color. But that's really important. And as an ally, I can use that privilege, if you will, that power for good. And I can choose to do that or I can choose not to. And that's such an important part of this conversation is how amazing if all the white people would, one, realize that, and then two, act on it and use their power and privilege for good. We could combat racism a lot faster than we are now. Are there any that we haven't thought about that you're hearing about like more prevalently? You know, the the only one that I would mention, and it may seem so obvious to you, but I want to mention it anyway, and that's the term equity. So for a long time, I mean, decades, it was always diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion. Now you'll almost always see DEI, and it's a good thing. And diversity and inclusion are still incredibly important. That equity is so important because equity is really just simply all about giving every single person the tools they need to be successful. And it's such a succinct way to say, you know, get rid of all the excuses, because in the past we've talked about equality, and there's so many different terms, but the equities at the end of the day, and it's how we check ourselves, is does everyone, like if I'm the manager of a team, does everyone on my team, no matter their background, no matter their lenses of intersectionality, do they have everything that they need to be successful? If so, I've done my job. If not, I know where I need to focus my energy. So that term equity, um, we're seeing more and more of. It's, It's certainly not a new term, but it's a beautiful thing that it's being brought into this conversation. If you're kind of one of those people who's not racist, but you're not really, like we talked about earlier, you're not active. What's, what's the in-between? It's, I'm so glad you asked that, Kristen, because in the reality, according to the experts, there's not an in-between. And that's what can be really um, humbling, right? And this is where the self-work comes into place. If we as individuals are not actively, regardless of our skin color, our sexual orientation, if we're not actively being part of the solution, then we fall into the other category. And so that's, that's hard for a lot of people. It is. And I've had so many conversations about this lately, but once you spend time there and really think about it, it starts to make sense. So if you're a listener out there, that's like, Oh no, Mia, Mm-mm, you are wrong. I get you. I hear you. It's okay. Take a deep breath, but spend some time in this arena and, and access some of the resources that we share because you start to get a little more educated and it's not, I, I promise you, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, okay, Mia, you're wrong. And then later you realize I'm right. Didn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a bad person. You just have a little more of that self-awareness and education to do until you get there. And then you can let it all go. Cause then it's like anti-racism, racism. Okay. Forget the terminology. Just do something about it. Just move forward in your workspace to try to get us to where we all want to be. And we're not quite there yet. Cause there really isn't a middle ground. We're in one bucket or the other. That's eye-opening, I think, yeah. at least for me. Yeah, it, it is for a lot of people. And, and for others, it's like, well, no, you know, we, we should have known this for a long time. And when I was first exposed to this terminology, I was 100% the same way. And I, I was actually extremely defensive saying, no, you know, you're wrong because I, my mother raised me this way and I've always been open-minded and she actually made me go to grade school to the other part of town where I had many more black kids that were part of the school because she wanted me to be part of that. So I, you know, I am nowhere near that. And yet, you know, I wasn't the person that was actually actively every day doing something But then it hit home, right? Once I spent time to really think about it, if I wasn't actively committing to and supporting the policies that were anti-racist, then then I was being racist. And and once you accept that, then you can live in that space and start to do something about it, right? Instead of feeling bad about yourself. So Mia, what would some of those small or just starting actions look like? You know, for the sake of argument, I see a kid being mistreated 
or I'm in the grocery store and I see a you know family of color getting different types of services than a white person would receive. Like, what does that look like? Just those small actions that maybe people can take baby steps to get more comfortable. Yeah, well, and it, it's actually what you just described. And it's, it's speaking up. It's like being confident and comfortable enough that you are willing to step in and support. And sometimes it's important to ask permission, right? Because it may be that, you know, the, the situation is being handled fine and your input is not needed or invited. But I would say the majority of times where I've seen situations like that, and it doesn't have to be like, oh, I have all this privilege and I'm coming in with this cape and I'm going to save the day. It's not that at all. It's just human to human. If you would see anyone in a situation that wasn't being treated with kindness, you know, maybe in the past we wouldn't have spoken up, but why not? Why wouldn't we do that? So I think it's, it's helping ourselves say, well, wait a minute, I'm seeing a situation. Someone's not being treated fairly, regardless of their color of skin, I would speak up. So why wouldn't I speak up now? Almost giving yourself that pep talk, right? Because like, you know what, I'm going to do this. And I will say, once you start to do this, it becomes so much easier and it's so um, fulfilling, right, as an individual. And, and it's true regardless of whether we're talking about racism or anything else, right? Being kind to someone and just acting and doing something good. I mean, talk about invigorating. And so we start to do it and it feels great and then we'll do more of it. And it becomes easier over time. So it is about taking that first step and just doing it. Throughout the history of this country, allies have been an integral part of the fight against racism and for equality. Can you give us an idea of who can be an ally and why allies are necessary? Absolutely. So, so one, anyone can be an ally, and that's such a beautiful thing. In the, in the reality of it, because an ally, why it's important is an ally, as we talked about before, might actually have more privilege. And if you recognize that, and if you use that, then, then the voices are so much more powerful when they are all alongside those that are, that are oppressed, right? We amplify voices. And it's not in place of. I think that's really, really important. So what allies do is they amplify. And sometimes it is their own voice just so they can make some room. But when that ally makes room, it's to step aside and let the person from the marginalized or oppressed group then share their own voice. To me, that's part of the power of allyship. So I think of Lady Gaga actually as a really good example of a modern day ally. And she is certainly, you know, out there with her own voice, but she is always propping up others. And once people start to listen to her, she steps aside and then props up those that maybe have not yet have a voice. And then the other one that oh, I always default to John F. Kennedy. Candidly, I don't even think he knew it. He wasn't doing it because he was president or because he was in the political space. And he was always just so solid in the middle of being an ally specifically for black and other people of color. So I use those just as two examples of many. There are so many strong allies and any of us can take on that role um, at any time and really use our privilege that we have to help support those that are marginalized, that those are oppressed, or those that maybe not have that privilege on any given day. In this age of technology and social media, it's easier than ever to speak up, but there are always going to be people out there who are more concerned with going viral or being trendy than actually making a difference. What do you say to them? And that's formative allyship. It's basically when you really feel like you're being an ally. You're out there sharing, for example, all kinds of content on how to be an anti-racist. Are you doing it because you really want to change the world? Are you checking back to see how many likes you have on that post? 
right? And if it's if you're going back and you're seeing the likes and you're seeing comments and you're like, woohoo, because it's validating yourself, I get it. I have been there. That's what we consider to be a bit of this performative allyship. You know, what am I getting out of it as a white person versus what am I doing to really change the system because the system is wrong? And that's tough. It's tough, but it happens all the time. And some people might be doing it now and they don't even realize it. So again, I would just encourage all of us and our listeners to think about that when we're making our, our next move. Make your next move anyway, because I don't want anyone to, that, to scare you into inactivity, but think about the reason behind it. As you mentioned earlier, we all have implicit biases and they impact how we act, but how can we as individuals evaluate ourselves and identify those unconscious perceptions? And also once we're aware of them, what steps can we take to correct them? Yeah, great question. So there's there's a couple things that I would say, and it's going to reiterate the theme from earlier, which is, you know, the self-awareness and the self-education is so critical. One specific thing I would encourage people to do is just to look around themselves. You know, do all of your friends look like you, act like you, think like you? And if they do, do something about that, right? Create your own diversity bonus in the people that you reach out to. One way to do that also is volunteering, right? So I think just volunteering in your community so that you can gain more perspectives and increase your self-awareness is so important and powerful for many, many different reasons. So I would definitely put volunteering in the mix. And then Harvard actually has a list of, I think it's 15 or 16 different implicit bias tests. And free, you can go there and, and take one of those tests and then it gives you your results in terms of, um, do you have implicit bias around this particular topic. So they have um, color of skin as one. They have one um, that relates to the LGBTQ community, etc. So there's 15 different ones. And I think as individually, they're excellent ways to really create some time for self-assessment. They could also be used in a group setting, invite people to share where they surprised, you know, by those results or not. It's a great way to stimulate conversation. Um, so those are all some ways to really start thinking about what we can do. And then in terms of how to correct them is that awareness is first, right? Once we realize it's like, okay, well then how do I want to behave differently? Um, what are the maybe different words that I want to choose moving forward so that I can eliminate that bias for myself? One of my vet school classmates, Dr. Kimba Marshall and I hosted a uh, what can I do Zoom call earlier this spring just because we had so many people that just wanted to talk about this. It's like, well, once I have awareness, what can I do and how do I go about it? And there are so many good resources out there. So Dr. Marshall and I, we have put together a very simple Google spreadsheet. On that spreadsheet, there's a resource tab that just has so many books and, and podcasts like this one and video, so many ways to consume information that helps us grow once we identify where we need to grow. That's always the first step in making a change is just identifying the problem. Absolutely. As we've talked before, this is just such a huge issue and it can be overwhelming for a lot of people. And that can contribute to a fear around talking about it. Um, you know, people are afraid of using the wrong terminology. They're afraid of offending someone. They're afraid of change or failure. What advice do you have for overcoming this fear, whatever it looks like? Yeah, that's, it's very real for sure for all of us. There was a recent um, conversation that Andy McCabe, he's the CEO of AAVMC that I keep coming back to. And he said, whether we're working with others or working on ourselves is to have grace and humility, right? 
just knowing we're going to mess up and be gentle with ourselves so that when we do, we have a strong foundation and become more confident with speaking up. But it's kind of like well-being and self-care, right? If we put that oxygen mask on ourselves first and really spend time with amping up our own well-being, then one, we're going to be more confident to have those conversations. And when we mess up, we're going to be gentle on ourselves. I think about the situation where you really do screw up, right? You say something that you wish you could pull back, but you can't. I mean, the best thing to do is just acknowledge it and apologize and move on. Because what I think our tendency is, is when we do make a mistake, we get so tied up in it and we start to wallow in it and we're over apologizing. We can't let it go. And what happens is, and this is how for me, when I finally stopped doing that, is I realized I had then made it all about me right? I turned the, the spotlight, the conversation, the whatever on me and my apology versus keeping it on what I was trying to accomplish in terms of moving things forward and being an anti-racist. So, you know, authentically apologize, acknowledge you made a mistake, and then just move on. And more often than not, the other person will recognize that you are indeed sorry, and they'll move on with you, right? So you can learn and grow. And I also think that if we never make a misstep, I don't think we're pushing ourselves hard enough, right? And not that I'm saying, oh, go out there and offend people because then it means you're growing. Not at all. But if we're getting through our day and our week and our year and we're, we're never saying anything that we're like, oh my gosh, I went too far. I used the wrong term. Then I really think we're still staying so much in our comfort zone and not, as we've talked about, getting comfortable being uncomfortable. And that's what it's going to take in order to really create the change and be part of the solution that we all know we want we want to it's taking that first step and again having grace and humility i'm um, educating ourselves right so if we do make a mistake well, let's figure out why let's figure out okay what would i say next time in the same situation so that self-education comes into play here again and then moving the conversation forward i can relate to that just in preparing for this interview i feel like i've had a few blunders but i've also learned a lot not only through purposeful education but also just spending some time really thinking about it and in this reflection, I made a discovery, and I'd like to share an analogy that might help our listeners shift their own perspectives. Sure, absolutely. So here at the OVMA, I'm considered the, the tech guru. And by default, I get to feel a lot of questions from my colleagues about technology. Sometimes, admittedly, that becomes exasperating because I know if they just took a little time to do some research, they could probably answer their own questions and maybe even learn something. Similarly, I think many white people assume that black people have all the answers simply by virtue of being black, which isn't the case. Nobody has all the answers about anything. So as we approach this kind of situation, I see two parts to this issue. First, why should people educate themselves on the history and impact of racism instead of just asking the nearest black person? And second, how do you recommend approaching race-related questions from both sides of the conversation? Thank you for sharing that example. It's such a good one. Um, in terms of why educating on the history and the impact of racism, I think that context matters so much because one, it, it allows us to become more passionate about it and actually do something about it because we understand the origins. You know, as an example with police brutality, I think, you know, you can see that and know that it's wrong when you see some of the horrifying acts that have happened this year. But then in terms of really starting to think about, well, wait, why, why are we here? And why have we allowed this for lo so long? And as you start to educate yourself by watching some of the videos, the movies that are out there, 13th as an example, you start to realize that, well, the roots are in the days of slavery and we haven't come that far. 
When you understand that, then you have the context, you broaden your understanding so much that you then are open to more self-education and eventually being able to have the confidence to act on it. So I do think that education is extremely important. And to your point, not just relying on, oh, I have a friend that's black, they'll know the answer, right? You're right. No, they're not going to have all the answers. They may very well want to share their thoughts with you, but that's a different question than doing the work yourself. And in terms of how to approach race-related questions from both sides of the conversation, I think it's situational, again, depending on where you are on that continuum of your own knowledge around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I, I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier, you know, approaching it with grace and humility. Don't assume the other, if you're on that side, if you don't assume the other person said something offensive because they're, they're a jerk go into it with, okay, maybe they didn't realize it. You know, maybe they didn't. And let's have a conversation around that. Now, it may turn out that they were a jerk, right? That happens sometimes. But if we assume the best and have the honest, open conversation, and, you know, sometimes depending on the context, being able to praise in public, but criticize privately, right? So it may be pulling that person aside, which allows it to be a more open conversation is really important. And again, I think as an ally, if we see something that we know is discriminatory and oppressive, and just not right, having that confidence to speak up is so important. And we do it by growing, right? The more knowledgeable we are, the more confident we are, the more easy it's going to be to speak up. And when we do, we may make a mistake. But then again, we have the grace and the humility, we apologize, and we move on. And hopefully, we'll, we'll be willing to do it again. As I'm learning again, too, in this space, I feel like there are different types of ways that you can be an ally. Like there's people that write checks and then people that want to dedicate their time and volunteering. What different ways can people be allies in that sense? When we talk about the different ways, I would go back to how Kimba and I organized our spreadsheet of resources because we had that same thought pattern. It's like there's so many different ways. How do we organize ourselves around this? And so we borrowed categories from an individual who had already done the work. We used act, donate, listen, read, and watch. So again, depending on where you are and just depending on the day, right? Sometimes it's like, okay, this is, this is heavy. I just, I just want to do one thing that I can like make consume a 30 minute video. Yes, it'll help me grow, but I, I, that's all I'm up for today. You know, I don't want to go out and volunteer. I'm not there today. If you're ready, you know, if you do want to act, if you do want to donate in that spreadsheet, it's a starter set. It's, it's definitely not all inclusive, but it allows you to start thinking about the different ways that you could donate, other different ways that you could actually act and physically do something today, and also things that you could listen to, read, or watch. Dr. Mia, before we let you go, can you share with our listening audience any resources that you would suggest they look into as they begin this? journey. The Harvard Implicit Bias Test. I mentioned earlier, this is a great way to start because it's literally, it's you go online, they're right there, it's free, it's easy. And you take one of those, it takes like 20 minutes and all of a sudden you learn so much about yourself. So it's just one specific way that you could take that next step wakeupvetmed.com. Basically, it's 10 affinity organizations in veterinary medicine have come together to really help move the profession forward. And they're working in collaboration with a lot of different existing organizations and communities and individuals. If you haven't yet, I would encourage you to go to that website, um, see what that's all about. And one of the things that they did, um, and this was led by Multicultural Veterinary Medical Association under the leadership of their board president, Dr. Tina Tran, they collected input from as many people that were willing to share stories of what they're currently experiencing in veterinary medicine as it relates to discrimination. And there were over 400 responses. And from that, they turned those responses into a seven minute long video. It's very powerful. 
I mean, be very horrifying. Um, some of it, if, if you haven't been exposed to these real world examples and real world stories in the past, they'll take your breath away. Um, and I have to give a shout out to Craig Sphinx and his group at Vedios that really turned these stories into life in the video. But it's extremely eye opening to help you understand what's happening today. And again, after you watch that, take some time, digest it, decompress on it, and then realize it's a perfect time to move forward, right? Because so many people are waking up to this, that we can work together to move individually forward, to move our profession forward, and to be part of the societal change that's so long overdue. So you, you both know me well enough to know that, you know, I keep it real, but I also, my default is there's always an upside, right? So as, so as ugly as, as that is, you know, this is such a time to come together and create change. Absolutely. Thank you so, so very much. For this to be kind of like the springboard into these conversations, I'm happy that we have you here to be a part of it. I know this is hard and I'm so happy that you're tackling this on your podcast. It's so important. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Bye. Many thanks to Dr. Mia Carey for joining us today. We hope the conversation was informative and encouraging. Join us next time as we continue our discussion with Dr. Mia and address diversity in practice. Until then, stay safe and be well. The Ohio Veterinary Medical Association is always seeking ways to enrich your member experience. To access resources mentioned in this episode, share your feedback and suggestions, and send us an email or voice message, please visit www.fullyvettedpodcast.com. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you prefer to listen so you never miss an episode. I'm Kristen Bennett, and on behalf of the OVMA, thanks for listening to Fully Vetted. We'll see you next time.